Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Thank you, Sue, for reading the scripture for us this morning. At at City on a Hill, we hold a very high view of God's word. It is his word to us. It is uh, inerrant, it is perfect, and it gives us everything we need to to know God and to follow him. And so if you're not involved with reading the scriptures, we'd love to help you get started. We have a a, a reading plan this year that we can send you uh, if you're interested. Uh, We, again, would love for you to fill out that Connect card either by uh, scanning the code or by going to coahforesthills.org slash uh, connect again. Uh, we'd, we'd love to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, our vi- our values here at City on a Hill are the gospel, community, and mission. Uh, the fir- the first one is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came came to live a perfect life we couldn't live. He died on the cross in our place to give us new life, and we would love to help you explore that relationship if you've not taken that step yet. Community is that God calls us not only to. Uh, personal salvation, but he calls us into a new family and we get to enjoy others who help us grow in that relationship. And then mission, we actually tell other people about it by uh, the words that we say, we declare the good news and we also demonstrate the good news in how we live. A few announcements today. Uh, the first is our membership process. We're starting our membership, uh, official covenant membership, which really means that you're saying, these are our people and uh, and this is my mission. And so even in the middle of uh, the pandemic, we'd love to help you explore what it looks like to love and care for others and to help push the, the vision of this church forward. And so uh, there's kind of a two-part uh, process for those who are already City on a Hill Brookline members who came with us. We have a process for you, but if you're new, we also have a process uh, to help you uh, go through our membership class. So you you can uh, find uh, membership information on our event page. Just click that and go through and we'll, we'll get you to the right place. And then secondly, uh, our next in-person service is going to be in two weeks on February 21st. We're really, really excited about this. This is going to be a really great time uh, for us. This will actually only be our fourth in-person service as a church, which is crazy, even though we started back in September. And so uh, join us for that. Um, you'll see a link that'll take you to the registration page uh, where you can get uh, get connected there. This morning, we're starting a new series on the life of David. Uh, this is a unique type of series because instead of looking at uh, a whole book verse uh, verse by verse, we're looking at a particular biblical character across a couple of different books. It's a little bit like that old TV show, This Is Your Life, where uh, someone would come on and they would uh, really celebrate this person's life and all the achievements they had done. Um, and, and people would come and they would say, hey, you know, I, you know, you probably don't remember me. I was your third grade teacher and so on and so forth. And, and this is a little bit like like, hey, David, here is your life. We're going to look at David's life and how it helps us grow as followers of Jesus. And so, Again, his life spans over two books. And I remember being a kid in Sunday school, we would learn about biblical heroes, heroes in the Old Testament, like Abraham and Isaac and, and Moses. And my, one of my favorites was David. David was this king. He did incredible stuff like slay a giant. And he was just this awesome, awesome figure. And so we're going to look at his life. And as we look at his life, um, we're going to see a couple of things. Uh, What David's life does for us is it tells us about ourselves. Uh, David is a really, really complex person, just like every person. No one is a monolith. No one is, uh, you know, two-dimensional. We're all, we all have all these different experiences and backgrounds and, and roles that we play that make us really who we are. And so David was a son. He was a shepherd. He was a friend. He was a king, but kind of juxtaposing that, he was, a, he was also a musician and a poet. He was a warrior. He, he, was, he was a husband. He was a father. 
And later in his life, he was a murderer, an adulterer, adulterer, a sinner, and someone who repented to God of these deep sins. He was a really complex person. And in David's life, we see that his failures give us light to our failures, and his successes give us hope that we can be successful. And there are, so there are three mistakes that we can make with Old Testament characters like David. One is we can make David the hero, the ultimate hero. We can have too high of an opinion of David. And we look at him and just think, okay, I just need to be like David. You know, be like Mike, be like David. That's what we tend to think of. Or we can have, be, kind of be too hard on David. We have too low an opinion of David. We see his, his uh, mistakes and his sins, and he did some really awful stuff. And we, it's easy to dunk on people like David because his entire life is laid out for us in writing. And I'm sure if someone were to take mine or your life and write our entire life story, no holds barred, full expose, they would see some pretty messed up stuff. And so it's easy to kind of be, have a too low of an opinion, but also it's easy to kind of just run past David, to move too quickly to how we apply it to our own lives. And so what David ultimately does is David's story tells us about Jesus. David's story tells us ultimately about Jesus. And the words we're going to look at over the next several weeks are about David, but they point past David to Jesus. David is this incredibly imperfect person. But as in Luke 24, Jesus told us that every scripture points to him. We see how David's life is a foreshadowing of this better king to come. And in the same way, our lives are to point away from ourselves, away from imperfect people towards our perfect Savior. And so today we're going to begin to look at David's life by examining how God called David. So our big idea for today is that God chooses people to give him glory. God chooses people to give himself glory. And so David's story begins to reveal to us who God is and how he works. And so firstly today, we see that David's life reveals the character of God. David's life reveals who God is and what he has done. So with David's story, we have to do a little bit of digging into his background, a little bit of some things that even happened before David comes on the scene to really understand what's happening here in 1 Samuel 16. And so we see in verse one that Samuel is weeping over Saul. Now you might be asking like, wait a minute, who are Samuel and Saul and why do they matter? And I thought this was all about David. Well, it is, but you can't understand David without understanding Samuel and Saul. Their destinies, their lives were intertwined with one another. And so we have to understand who Samuel and Saul are to really get who David is. So Samuel, we see him in verse one, is the prophet of Israel. He was the person who had spoken for God to the people and sometimes would speak for the people to God. And the the prophet would come and he would give a judgment on the people from God saying, you know, this is how you've broken God's law. This is how you're disobeying. This is how you're not loving him with your whole heart. And he would call them back to faithfulness to God. He'd remind them and call them back. And so this was the role of the prophet, kind of the direct connection between God and the people. And so Samuel was Hannah's son. And so if you go all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 1, there's a woman named Hannah. She was unable to have kids and she's crying out to God, just weeping before him. And God blesses her with his grace and opens her womb to have a child. And she says, Lord, I will dedicate this child to you because of your faithfulness to me. And so in this, she ends up sending Samuel to work with Eli, the old prophet. And so Samuel ends up becoming the prophet over Israel. And so up until this point in Israel's history, the way that God connected with his people was through the prophet. The prophet would speak to them. But we see in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that the people wanted a king. 
And they were a little bit like an impetuous, like an impetuant child who, or a petulant child who would say, dad, like all the neighbors have kings. Like, why can't we have one? And that's kind of what they did. All the neighboring nations around them had earthly kings. And they said, we want one just like they have one. And God gives them a king, which seems crazy because he had been the king over them, but listen to why he gave them a king. 1 Samuel 8 verse 7 says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you as the prophet over them, but they have rejected me from being king over them. They had rejected God as their king, the God who had delivered them from slavery in Egypt, the God who had brought them to the promised land and seen them through the generations. They wanted their own earthly king And what this did was revealed the desires of their heart, which is why following the desires of your heart unchecked is a really bad idea because our hearts are deceitful and they want all sorts of things that don't please God. Earthly rulers tend to reveal the character of the people. And it did here. Their desire for this king reveals their hearts and God gives them the king to show them how short that king would fall how short that king would fall compared to him as their king. And so Samuel in all of this chooses Saul. Now, again, I thought this was about David. It is. You got to hang with me for a minute. But we need to look at Saul. Saul was that dude. I mean, I'm not sure if that's exactly what the Hebrew says, but he was that dude. He was the guy you would pick as king. He was tall. In fact, what the word says is that he stood a shoulder and head above everyone else, which is where I think we get the term head and shoulders above the rest. He was incredibly tall. He was handsome. He had a good family. He was everything you would look for in a king. He was educated. He would have had a great resume. Uh, He was charming. He was winsome. And Saul actually started out okay, which a lot of people who are very capable, who are very gifted, tend to be able to do until time begins to reveal character. Time always reveals character. That's why as a church, we're slow about the laying on of hands when it comes to elders because time reveals character. We see that his character showed when he began to, he uh, unlawfully gave an offering with the wrong heart when he was not designated to do so. He made rash words that almost got his son, Jonathan killed. He, He disobeyed God by not wiping out an entire people who were incredibly evil. But actually one of the things that he did was he, instead of destroying their livestock, which would be kind of like, you know, destroying their their bank account in that time, that's where their wealth was. He took their wealth and took it as his own. He was more concerned as a king about making himself look great to all his other king buddies around him than he was actually pleasing God. And so Samuel prophesies, he says, you've been rejected as king, Saul. You've been rejected as king. You're out, you're done. And so as we come to 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, we see Samuel is gutted. He is absolutely devastated. And it says that he wept all night in chapter 15. He wept over the sin of his friend and King Saul. He loved Saul. This was his guy. And so this is where we begin to see the character of God. God says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Now he doesn't say to Saul, look, or Samuel, look, suck it up. Why would you possibly cry? Like he's not saying that this isn't worthy of crying over. He's a good father. And he knows that sometimes you need to cry. Too many boys have been told that men don't cry. 
But the Bible makes incredible room for us to express a full range of emotions. And oftentimes it is weeping. It's pouring our hearts out. It's deep emotion. There are certainly times to mourn, but there's also times to move forward. And God, like a good father, is tender with Samuel, but he also wants to help him see rightly as a good father. And this is where a good friend often steps in when you're in the middle of grieving or middle of mourning or being upset as they sit with you in that, but they also help you look away from that towards God. We begin to see God's character in this. And he says here, he says, how long? When you ever see the words, how long, O Lord, it's always with a gaze toward God. David said those exact words in many songs, how long, O Lord? It's sitting in real grief and real struggle, but looking with hope to a good God. And there are two things we see here that give Samuel hope in the middle of his grieving. One is he sees that God's plans are perfect. In verse one, he says, the reason that Saul, or Solomon, or, uh, sorry, Samuel, too many S names, uh, that Samuel can stop grieving is that God was the one who rejected Saul. God rejected him. This was God's plan. Now, Saul was responsible. This was, this was Saul's fault. It was because of his sin, but God is still sovereign. It did not surprise him. And God would still use it for his glory. Now, this, what this doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that we get to use the fact that God's in control of everything to make bad decisions. Like we don't get to use that as a, as a kind of a, a scapegoat. But what it does mean is that when we do pursue what is right, when we seek righteousness, when we make the hard decision, when we choose to look up from our grieving towards God, we can trust that he is committed to his own glory and that that is for our good. Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 48, verse 11 says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. God's plans will never be thwarted. But also God sees what we cannot see because he is sovereign and knows all things. He can see what's around the corner that you and I can't. In verses one through three, we see God's plan begin to unfold that's going to be for Samuel and for Israel's good. He tells him, he says, go and take uh, your horn with oil. I'll send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And so Samuel hears this plan and goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, God, like Saul's still king, like he's still reigning and you're gonna send me to him. He's gonna kill me. But God says, I can see what you can't. I know what's ahead, and I know that my purposes are good to give you a new and better king. God could see what Samuel could not. You see, it's so easy for us to get focused on here and now, upon our plans and being in control of our own lives on the present. But what happens when we trust God to lead us, even when things are uncertain, is that we know there's a promise of greater joy down the road. That's why when we pray, we can have confidence and we can actually, if, if we were able to see what God sees, we would pray for what he gives us because he sees what we can't see. It gives us hope when we cry out, how long, O Lord, that our grief isn't going to be forever because we have a God who knows, a God who sees, a God who ordains all things because there's a link between God's glory and our joy. That what he gives us is best and we can trust him even when we, when we can't see it. 
So David's life shows us. It shows that God is glorious. It shows that he's kind, that he has a perfect plan, that he sees what we can't. But it also shows us some of the ways that God works his plan out. Secondly, we see that David's life reveals who God chooses. We see the type of people that God tends to choose. And this is really an incredible story. In verse three, Samuel goes to Bethlehem, this tiny little town in the middle of nowhere. In, in fact, if you look at the book of Micah, it talks about this, you know, old, old little Bethlehem, this tiny little town that wasn't even you know, worthy of being called a clan of Israel. He goes to this nobody family that Jesse's a part of. And, and if you know your Bible, you know that Jesse is Ruth's grandson. Ruth is an incredibly famous woman who was a Moabite, had an incredible faith, but you probably would never have known about Ruth unless David had become king. Her story became famous because she's David's relative. And it was this beautiful picture of God's faithfulness. And so there's this kind of nobody family in this nobody town. And in verse four, again, this is, this is just, it's so, it's so funny. The Bible gives us even bits of comedy. We see in, um, in, in uh, verse four, it's, uh, he, he, uh, Samuel goes and the, uh, the, the elders of the city, they see him and they say, do, do you come peaceably? And, and the reason they said this is they're a little bit like, like a kid who's afraid when mom and dad are going to come home and they realize they didn't clean the house like they were told. They started going into panic mode because prophets didn't just come to hang out. They came to bring judgment. And he's bringing a heifer with him, meaning that they think someone in this, in this town has sinned, like maybe committed a murder and he's having to make a sacrifice. Like he's coming to bring trouble. And they're saying, do, do you come peaceably? It's kind of like, are, are we in trouble? And he says, peaceably. They're like, okay, we're good. We're a little worried. Verse five, we see that he tells them to consecrate themselves, to get ready. And they're like, look, whatever you say, Samuel, just don't kill us. We know, we know your reputation. Like, don't, don't hurt us. Um, and he says, go consecrate yourselves. Get, you know, make your heart right. Examine your heart. And, and Samuel does the same thing with Jesse and his sons. And this is an exciting scene. The entire city is coming together. Um, Samuel is going to choose a new king to be over all of Israel. And Samuel begins to scan Jesse's sons. And you got to imagine which one he's going to pick. And in verse six, it says that he sees Eliab. And this is really interesting language. It says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. In other words, that, that's got to be him. This kid passes the eye test. He has everything you could possibly want in a king. It'd be like walking into a high school gym and seeing LeBron James warming up. Like, you know, this kid's got it. You know, this kid's got everything that it takes to be a good athlete. Eliab has everything that it takes to be a good king on the outside. You can't miss this kid. And of course, he's the one that Samuel would pick because that's who we would pick. As a culture, we tend to privilege people who are tall and who are good looking um, studies have shown that people who are tall make more money on average than people who are short. In fact, there was someone who did a study that showed that for every inch above average height, a person uh, would make $789 per year per inch more than that person of average height. And so someone who was five foot five made $166,000 less over a lifetime than someone who was six foot tall. We value looks, we value degrees, we value achievements because those are the people that we deem to be worthy of following. But who does Eliab sound a lot like? He sounds a lot like Saul. 
He's tall. He's athletic. He, Samuel's about to make the exact same mistake. But in verse 7, we see one of the most insightful verses on who God chooses in the entire Bible. God looks at the hearts. He looks at the hearts. He looks at the inner person. When we think of heart, we tend to think of, of just feelings. The inner person that's being described here is the mind, the will, the emotions, basically who you really are. Everything that you are, what, what motivates you and what guides you. And, that, and that's why what you do and what you believe and what you desire are all interconnected with one another. Or as James K.A. Smith says, our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity the wellspring from which our actions and behaviors flow. This is why heartless action doesn't please God. And you see throughout the Bibles where um, he would chastise his people for doing festivals and making sacrifices while their hearts were far away from him. But it's also why James says that faith without works is dead. Because if you are living to, to please God from a whole heart, this longing after him, it will lead to a life that loves and serves others. God wants humble hearts, not outward excellence. He doesn't need you and I to be awesome because he is awesome. See, God always chooses the lowly and the humble of heart. And so do you want to know how lowly David was? Samuel, and he, he, he looks at all of Jesse's sons. He goes through them one by one. And in verse 11, he's scratching his head because now seven kids have gone before him. And he's like, did I miss something? So he asks Jesse, hey, is that all your sons? Is that, is that everybody? And, and Jesse, and he's, he's like, well, you know, there is the youngest. The word youngest there, the sense of that is the runt. It was so inconceivable that David would be the new king of Israel that Jesse left him at home. So inconceivable. It's like male Cinderella. Uh, and, and the word behold here is like, oh yeah, there's, there's David. He's, he's tending the sheep. I mean, I guess I forgot about him. So, you know, what do Chad Pennington, Giovanni Carmazzi, Chris Redman, T. Martin, Mark Bolger, and Spurgeon Wynn all have in common? Those were the six quarterbacks chosen before Tom Brady in the 2000 NFL draft. Now, when you look at those six guys, you see a national championship winner, you see muscles, you see college achievements, you see good-looking guys, you see people who you would put on, you know, on, on a Nike ad, you see the people who outwardly have everything that they would need to be successful as a quarterback. When you looked at Tom Brady's combine tape, you saw a scrawny, slow kid who couldn't even keep his starting job in college, who ends up going on to be the greatest quarterback in NFL history because there was something inside that no one could see. Like Tom Brady, God sees David's heart and he sees the type of inner person that he wants, a person who is humble of heart. He looks past the outward appearance. He looks past his ruddy complexion, which either means like a reddish tint to his skin or, or reddish hair. He sees beautiful eyes. He sees that he's handsome, but he looks past all of that to the heart. The type of people that God chooses is counter to who the world would choose. God chose the younger over the older by choosing Jacob over Esau. He chose unwanted women like Leah and Hagar and Tamar and Ruth. He chose the barren. He chose the small. And we see this ultimately in Jesus, that Jesus was not who we would have sent. 
Isaiah said that he was nothing to look at. He had no beauty that we would behold him. We would reject him. And God calls us the same way because he chooses the foolish to shame the wise. Now, David was incredibly capable. And we'll see that over the next several weeks. He was very capable because shepherds were tough guys. He was a blue collar guy. He worked hard. He worked this lowly job. And being a shepherd was a very lowly job, but lowliness prepares us for greatness. See, who God chooses are those who humble themselves before him and he lifts them up. He gives grace to the humble. And as we come to Christ, we do so not bringing our credentials to the table, not bringing our intellect to the table as the reason that we get in, not bringing our good record to the table as the reason that we get in, but lowly before him, believing that God, like David, will raise us up. Lastly, we see David's life reveals how God uses. So how does God use those that he chooses? So we're beginning to just beginning to unpack this. We're going to look at this over the next couple of weeks. But notice how God uses David. I don't don't want you to miss this. Samuel, so we see here in in, uh, verses 12 and 13, he anoints David. He pours oil over him. And he anoints him for this task. And this seems odd in our culture. If someone were to come to a party and dump olive oil on your head, you'd be a little weirded out. But it's very normal in this culture. It symbolized something beautiful. It was the spirit rushing on David. And so oil, when you pour it on your skin, and some people still use oil on their skin um, and and in their hair, um, eventually it enters skin. It enters your hair. It becomes absorbed into your body and it actually gives a vibrancy and a beauty to your skin and your hair. And we see this and the picture would have been and it would just pour all over David. This is a picture of God lavishing his grace upon David. And what anointing does is it has two purposes. It, has two, it does two things. It sets aside someone for a purpose and then it gives them power for that purpose. So David is being set aside as king. And that word for anoint is similar to the word Messiah, that what God is doing is he is setting David aside to be a king like he is king, to be a representative of God to his people, to be a humble king, one who didn't seek power, but used it to bless other people, someone who would sacrifice for the good of the people. But also he empowers him for that purpose. David needed the spirit to do this. It wasn't because David was inherently good. The Spirit empowered him to rule rightly and image God to his people. And so he provided all that he needed to do God's will. He allowed David in the following verses through the rest of chapter 16 to love a broken man like Saul. Saul, because of his disobedience, God uh, sent a tormenting spirit upon him. Saul, Saul had this mental breakdown through his own disobedience. And the only thing that would soothe him is David playing music. He empowered and allowed David to love his enemy when Saul chased him. He allowed David to wait patiently for God to fulfill his purposes. See, God always gives power to fulfill his purpose in your life. And he does so by the spirit. If you look at Acts chapter two, what does Peter say? He quotes Joel's prophecy in Joel two, where he said that, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. What God did in David is a picture of what God does for all of us who trust Christ. He gives us his Holy Spirit. 
to remind us of the hope we have in Christ, but also to empower us for the purpose that God has set us aside for in the world, which is to glorify him in everything we do, to spread his glory to every corner of our city, to every corner of the world. And he does so by giving us his spirit so that whatever God calls you to face, he gives you the power to face it in him. Now I wanna caution here. It's really easy to look at David's life and think, you know what? I just need to be more like David. I need to be more humble. I just need to have better character. And, and if you leave here feeling like, you know what, I've got the three steps I need to be a better person, or, may, or you look at this and go, I just can't do this. It seems too hard. I, th- I think you're missing what this is pointing to. This isn't about positive affirmations about being a better person. You know, it's, it's not like the old Saturday Night Live skit with Stuart Smalley back in the early 90s. He would look in a mirror and he'd say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like me. That's not what you do with David. But what you do in David is you look at a humble person who gave himself to the Lord. And what David should point you to is he should point you to Jesus who humbled himself and gave himself for you. And so when you look at the call here to be a humble person, you need to look at what you're being called to do, but then look at how actually you're not able to do what God has asked you to do in your own power. Then you look to Jesus who did it for you and then ultimately how he empowers you through the spirit. See, Jesus is the better David. He was another who was born in Bethlehem. He was a shepherd to a wandering people. He was overlooked, but he was the anointed king who came for your good. And like Samuel, you often look at the wrong king. You look to the wrong king. Look to the better king. Who or what is king over your life? Look to Jesus. What are you facing? If you're in Christ, if you've trusted Jesus, ask the spirit to empower you for the purpose of glorifying God. Amen. And if you've not yet trusted Christ, I I call for you to look to Jesus to be the king of your life. Let us look to Jesus together as we glorify him in our lives. Let's pray. Let's pray.